The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's definitely embarrassing for these protests to go on for long. Just the fact that they happened is completely, I mean, this is, we're really definitely crossing into, crossing red lines. There have been protests before against Xi Jinping. All those people, these were usually lone woman, lone man kind of protests, and these people have suffered significantly. A lot of them vanish, disappear completely. Their family members get detained, show up later in body bags. You know, they get released from prison only when they're dead. The stories are really awful. So using that to guide what could happen next, all of these people are probably going to be looking at a pretty rough time going forward. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 1st, 2022. Protests have broken out in China over the zero-COVID policy, over lockdowns, and even over the rule of newly appointed third-term leader Xi Jinping. The government has begun a crackdown. There have been arrests. There have been intimidating interrogations, and there have been street closures and a lot of internet content removed. To go over it all and see what we can make of it, Sophia Yan, whose piano you are listening to right now, joined me in the virtual jungle studio from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Sophia just left China, where she has been the Telegraph's correspondent for a number of years. We talked about whether these protests might have legs. We talked about what capacity the government has to shut them down. And we talked about whether this could be the beginning of something. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 1st. Sophia again on the China protests. So my first question is, Sophia, you leave China and a revolution breaks out. Why were you holding it back all these years? <laughs> you know, this this has been possibly a long time coming. Uh, it is surprising to see something like this happen. I won't say that vocalizing dissent is necessarily rare, but it's usually much smaller pockets. And I say that this is maybe a long time coming because all this year already there have been smaller protests over all sorts of issues, over frustration with the zero COVID restrictions. There were some concerns over labor issues. There was bank fraud. There was a huge scandal. Uh, and so smaller groups of demonstrators had organized. Those were all shut down very quickly. But something's been brewing for a while, even all the way back 
at the start of the pandemic, when Wuhan was first locked down, a lot of people were pretty upset with what was going on too, because not only was it completely bewildering because it was the start of the pandemic, nobody knew anywhere in the world what we were dealing with. I remember at the time interviewing disease experts who were saying things like, well, we don't even know that a lockdown will work. I mean, that is how little anybody knew about what was going to happen and what was happening and sort of in a way the Chinese authorities were, were throwing spaghetti on the wall. But how things were handled then, people were upset with that because there were concerns about cover-ups, about uh, a lack of transparency over what was happening, the number of deaths, etc. And so there has been discontent for quite some time, but it comes and goes. And for a long period of time, actually, when the rest of the world was dealing with COVID and in total turmoil, these zero COVID restrictions that people are protesting today were things that people were proud of. They were saying, along with the government, that this was a sign of what made China great. This was what made China so superior because the West and all these other nations who were dealing with COVID couldn't manage their population. They couldn't even get their people to wear face masks. So it's been really interesting to see the sort of rise and fall and how people feel about these rules. All right. So what do we know? Uh, I mean, we've seen these little snippets on Twitter and little bits of video that people have managed to get out. What do we actually know about the scope and scale and diversity of the protests? I think that's actually the most interesting part. It's been, there have been protests across the country. Uh, it seems like what really sparked this wave was a fire that happened in Urumqi. This was earlier in November, and at least 10 people died, including a child, a child of only three. It was this, uh, in a residential building in Xinjiang, and there's this concern that maybe the death count was higher because of the COVID controls, because people couldn't get out. Maybe exits were sealed. There's been a lot of anger because of these secondary issues around the COVID lockdowns. Actually, in September, there was a bus that crashed. It was heading for quarantine. It was taking a whole bunch of people for quarantine, and that crashed. And a bunch of people died then, too. There have been many incidents like this. And so people are really upset with what this has meant for their lives. And so what we've seen are protests that started in Urumqi after that fire. They've spread to different parts of China, lots of different cities. Something like nearly 80 universities have had some sort of demonstration. And they've also gone to Beijing. And they are an expansion in terms of what they're saying and chanting and calling for of a protest that happened in the middle of October, just a few days before the 20th Party Congress. There was one guy who showed up on an overpass in Beijing. He put out this banner and he was calling for freedom, no COVID lockdown, no more tests. And even for Xi Jinping to step down, he was just one guy and it was shut down very quickly, but... There was enough, it was a popular artery in the city, enough people passed by to take a look, snap pictures, got some video, and it went all over the internet. Of course, it got censored quickly inside China, but not before it got onto Twitter. And so that's what we're seeing again, this repeat, a rehashing of what he had called for. I think these calls for Xi Jinping to step down are really remarkable. It's bold for people to say that. So talk to me about you know, one way to look at it is, okay, so there are some medium-sized protests around the country. The government has lots of capacity to repress this uh, and shut it down. 
Is there any reason in your judgment to think that this has legs, or is this a momentary blip that the repressive apparatus of the CCP is more than capable of handling? Hmm. You know, I can only look into a crystal ball (laughs) to answer that one. I would venture to say that this is probably a momentary blip. I don't see this sparking momentous change because the surveillance and security apparatus in China has so much power. You know, some of these students that were protesting in Beijing weren't wearing face masks, which is pretty bold. They're protesting zero COVID restrictions. I guess it makes sense that they're going to go out without face masks. But with facial recognition, with the way they can track where you've been via your cell phone, who you're texting, who you're talking to, uh, it's very easy for the government to track who was there. Even if you've got hundreds or thousands, they can figure out where you were and they can make life pretty awful for you. I mean, already people who were in that area, in the vicinity, involved in the protest, even just kind of in that neighborhood, at least when it comes to Beijing, people are getting phone calls already from the police asking them what they were doing, what they were after, who they were with. It's hard to say now how much of a chilling effect that might have, but maybe that will be enough. For a lot of these young students who are out there, in a way, they weren't the most impacted by the zero COVID restrictions. You know, you have to think about mom and pop shops that couldn't open for months and now have no way to make a living. You know, these students also may not have the full understanding of what happened in 1989 in Tiananmen. In, in that sense, maybe after erasing history for so many years, you risk it's, it repeating itself again. So it's possible what they're doing already to keep everything under wraps, the censorship, this intimidation, detaining people, just disappearing them for a bit will be enough to get people to back down. And secondly, there's also no real mechanism for people to organize. You need to be able to get foreign apps that are secure to be able to do that. And if you've got Chinese apps like WeChat on your phone, even if you have a secure messaging app on your phone, it may not be enough. WeChat, there's loads of research out there about how much WeChat can do kind of in the background. So there may not be much, many more avenues for people to be organizing after this particular incident. That doesn't mean that the feeling and the sentiment has gone away. And what we've seen in the past, especially in the case of Hong Kong, is that after each successive round of protest, the government cracked down more. But then at some point, something would spark anger and people would come to the streets again. It's hard to say if that will happen across mainland China. It is definitely remarkable that we're seeing so many pockets of protest cropping up. But I really wouldn't discount, A, the government propaganda machine to start seeding disinformation and changing the narrative, and B, the strength of the security for, uh, security um, forces in China. All right. So... The government has not so far acknowledged the protests officially at all, right? They've just erased reference to it. What has the reaction been? There's been really nothing. There has been a bit of hoopla over a foreign journalist who was detained uh, while covering the Shanghai protests. But there's no acknowledgement of what he was covering necessarily, just that he a claim from the Beijing side that he wasn't showing his credentials, that he hadn't shown his credentials, and that there's even actually a little bit on social media uh, about whether or not foreign forces are at play and fomenting this unrest. This is a classic Beijing line, right? You can see how they might go down this path very quickly. And with the way they got bots all over social media, it's easy to kind of see this idea. So they've got a big task in front of them 
in some respect, they're going to have to deal with the frustration that's spoiling over, over the COVID restrictions. But it's also maybe emblematic of other frustrations that people generally have with the state. I've said this a lot over the last few years since the pandemic erupted, but for a long time, the people who would feel such a sharp side of the state, they were human rights dissidents, human rights lawyers. They were people who were sort of pushing the envelope, right? But all of a sudden with zero COVID, everybody felt the state like in their homes. You know, if you had to quarantine at home, you would have a camera. I mean, I had that too. You would have a, some sort of alarm or camera at your door to make sure you didn't go outside. So every time you opened your door, somebody would know if you were in a quarantine facility, obviously the same thing. COVID, contact tracing, the testing, all of these things, all of a sudden everybody was dealing with so much in their lives, this extra layer of control. And you could kind of laugh it off because sometimes it wasn't always the most well-enforced. Sometimes people would just kind of shrug it off. COVID workers sometimes would get a little fed up themselves and just kind of do a cursory swab for your, in your throat, that kind of thing. Um, but it's been three years. You know, COVID started in China at the beginning of 2020, late 2019, possibly. I mean, what we really know of it is around that time period. It could have been even earlier. But those COVID controls came in starting January 2020. We are near the end of 2022. That is nearly three full calendar years of this. So it makes sense that people are just completely done with it. But some of the rhetoric in the protests goes beyond COVID. It's freedom. It's Xi Jinping needs to resign, you know, crossing exactly the red lines that you and I talked about in connection with your podcast. Should we take that as a expression of dissatisfaction with the larger regime, or is that just ancillary to COVID lockdown dissatisfaction? It's really hard to know for sure and to cast a blanket over how everybody is feeling. This idea of freedom could mean what what life was like pre-COVID, maybe not freedom the way you and I might think of it. And then this idea for Xi Jinping to resign, he has broken with precedent. This is something that even in heavily censored China, people know that usually you wouldn't have a leader on for more than 10 years. So you could maybe see a situation, different guy, same system. That could be still a long ways off from now. There's also a very real question of whether or not he knows people are saying this out in the streets. And if he does, how are his lieutenants explaining that? You know, they maybe they're the ones saying to him, it's foreign forces, it's the CIA, who knows? You know, we don't have insight into that very elite level of what she might know about what's happening what those around him are saying about what's happening. In a way, you have to imagine that he can't possibly not know, but who knows? It's like a, it's a black box all the way up there at the top ranks of Chinese politics. These protesters are also pretty inexperienced. In a way, they don't know what to ask for or what to demand. They don't have the know-how to figure out how to organize how to push for how to push for their demands, things like that, and so this is really interesting. It's like this sort of burgeoning, inexperienced protesters that are coming out. There's a big question: Can they organize more? Can they streamline their efforts and make more clear demands that they can then push for? Hard to say. The crackdown again is already starting, so I'm not sure that that has legs. And the people who have been detained in this crackdown. Is this a situation where people are just vanishing or is this a situation where people get detained and then released? A little, also a little too early to tell. In China, you can be held for about two weeks without um, charges being 
actually uh, placed against you. So people can vanish for that period of time. And that would be quote unquote legal under Chinese law. So we'll see. Uh, they were taking, they were rounding up some people during the mass protests. And then in the time after there were barricades going up, police were stopping people out in the streets, asking them for their phones and deleting any evidence, any photo or um, videos of what had happened. I mean, they're down to the grassroots trying to erase what happened, right? There are sensors online doing that. And then people offline, like the cops going around, making sure people don't have any record of what happened. And obviously messages and things like that on social media already coming down. You referred earlier to police calls to folks who had been in the neighborhood or who had been bystanders or maybe participants. Uh, are those principally designed to intimidate people into participating in things in the future? Or is it an investigative effort to kind of figure out who was involved for purposes of arrest? I would say it's most likely intimidation, because if they're calling you, then they already know who's involved. And, and it doesn't matter how involved you were. If you were just in the vicinity, that could be enough to get you into pretty serious trouble right now. This is based on past precedent. A lot of youth that are online have experienced some form of censorship. So they know where the red lines are. They know if things get blocked. They know they don't have the full story necessarily. When it comes to what's happening around the world, they also know that they're probably not getting the full story about their own government and officials. There's pretty widespread understanding that corruption is a thing still. So this sort of next level intimidation is probably pretty new to them. The idea that they were in a place and the next day their family gets a call or they get a call or they get a visit by the police. This is something that they maybe heard about before or maybe knew about, but will never have experienced to this extent. You know, I know this really well because in my time in China, I have come across a number of Chinese colleagues working for my organization or other organizations as researchers, as journalists, and they all have experience having studied or worked abroad. They know in theory what can happen if you cross a red line. But because they work for foreign media, oftentimes they get visits too from the police. This is also happening right now those who were involved in, in covering the protests. And when this happens, I've seen them time and time again be so shocked. Even though they already know in theory that this is something that can happen, they don't ever think that it can happen to them. And they also don't realize how much of a target they could possibly be. So my guess is that for a lot of these people experiencing this sort of next level intimidation, is just so new to them. They will possibly be very surprised at how much the state can figure out about their activities. And it's possible that this is enough to scare them into stopping. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I was struck in the, particularly the Twitter coverage by how few Western journalists still seem to be on the ground. There was a lot of discussion of the BBC reporter who was arrested, whose name I'm forgetting. But the number of Western reporters there sharing their own video seemed to be very small. So I'm, I'm, as one of the Western reporters who, as of a few days ago, is no longer there, like, give us a sense of the media landscape. Are there significant numbers of Western reporters in a position to cover this? Or is this a really going to be a lot of local footage making its way out that gets uh, capitalized on as it makes its way to people like you? Yeah, I think that is what we're looking at, the latter. People who are there living through this, participating or observing it and sending things out in whatever capacity that they can. China, over the last couple of years, has expelled a number of foreign journalists. They've also made it so difficult to work that a lot of people have chosen to leave. And the risks aren't going away. In fact, they're only getting higher. On top of that, because of COVID, quote unquote, they haven't really granted and mass foreign journalist visas. Already before the pandemic, China was using visas and weaponizing them restricting access as a way to punish reporting that it didn't like from organizations, from specific journalists. Ever since the pandemic came, they've been saying COVID, you know, they've been citing COVID as a reason for not giving out journalist visas. So we've had waves of expulsions. We've had people leaving for their own reasons because of safety, because the risks are just completely out of control and they're not letting people in. So the ranks of foreign journalists are far diminished from pre-COVID times. There are a few who have gotten, a few outlets who have gotten visas, but we're talking down to specific people that the Chinese government has said, we don't want this person in. You know, we don't, we don't like this person for whatever reason. They, they don't necessarily say so explicitly, we don't like this person, but they have made it very clear in many instances um, that they don't want person A with this outlet to be in China. So they're cherry picking who they like and which outlets are going to have access. And so it's really this dance and you're right, you have touched on something, you've observed um, something that is, I think, really unfortunate. The foreign press corps in China is so diminished. And it's coming at a time when really we need to have more understanding and more visibility rather than less. I mean, so many governments around the world are thinking now about how to deal with China, how to make policy to deal with China. You can't 
wall yourself off from China. There's no such thing. You know, you cannot do that. There's no country that can do that. But how do you work in conjunction? How do you protect national security interests, but still have some sort of relationship? You know, how do you gauge this? Well, we need information. The whole world does. But now we don't have as many foreign journalists there anymore, which is really, I think, unfortunate. So I want to talk about zero COVID. Um, one way the Chinese government could let a lot of air out of the balloon is to relax the zero COVID rules, except that they're going to have some degree of internal transmission, which they seem to have lost control of anyway. There seem to be a lot of cases right now in Beijing. And, you know, let people have a little bit more normal lives. But to do that, they would have to acknowledge error. Uh, or at least maybe not acknowledge error, but de facto acknowledge error. They'd have to change course. Uh, how plausible do you think a change in policy is at this point, or is it just too much of a black box to know? Beijing has really boxed itself in. It, the propaganda all this time coming from Xi's own mouth has been that zero COVID is here to stay. There have been very short-lived experiments at trying to change the narrative. There's this term dynamic zero COVID that was going around. It's pretty much still the same. They have reduced quarantine times in general for travelers coming into China. There is some relaxation of border controls, but not en masse. I mean, those, the flights that are coming from outside China into the country are still very much restricted and way lower than they used to be. And for them to allow those flights to resume, for people to be able to move freely from city to city within China, this is definitely opening opening up Pandora's box. From a pure public health perspective, the government has a huge problem. They didn't give out mRNA vaccines. They wouldn't allow foreign vaccines into the country. Kind of an issue of political face. You know, they didn't want to allow U.S., German, British vaccines to come in. They were trying to develop and still are their own mRNA vaccine. And so everybody got these Chinese vaccines that work to a certain extent, but are not great. And the elderly population, there's not great vaccine coverage there. So if they do let COVID run through, there's a big question still whether of whether the hospitals could handle this wave. So there's a pure public health concern here because the population in China is so vulnerable. There's no hybrid immunity from natural herd immunity and vaccine coverage. So they box themselves in, right? They keep, they've spent all this time saying, this is the way we're going to do it. It's why we're superior. It's worked so far. So if they relax now, it's like you say, they have to, just by changing course and changing policy would mean that they maybe went down the wrong path. But there's also the question, can they keep this going? I mean, three years in, people are clearly upset it's just too much, really. Well, and and not only do they, if they shift gears, have a face problem, they also have, as you describe, a rampaging virus problem. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is not a great set of options. Uh, the other thing is that with COVID, they managed to build this contact tracing slash surveillance system, it's hard to see that going away. It's really useful for the government to have something like that. They've integrated it into 
these uh, mobile app platforms are basically sort of a one-stop shop for all government services and the contact tracing is built into that. So every city, every locality, every province will have it. And it's really smart. Like I've traveled to different provinces and cities and if I open that program, it automatically pulls in my information. So I just open it and it's already got my passport number, my name, all of this stuff and this local health code that I need for the contact tracing. So it's hard to see that the government will want to stop that part of zero COVID. It's a really useful tool for social control. So, you know, I guess we'll see what they do to a certain extent. I imagine they'll try to use propaganda to change the messaging around this a little bit. Uh, Also the actual on the ground workers implementing all of these measures, they're feeling, they're feeling kind of fed up too. You know, sometimes they sort of, there've been a few cases I've heard where they kind of look the other way. You know, there was a case, uh, for instance, of someone in Beijing who in the building, someone had tested positive and that person, uh, this person I know got a call just letting them know that there was such a case. And then if that friend of mine had a place to stay that wasn't in the building, they wouldn't put him on the list for quarantine. There's like little bits and pieces here and there that show how those tasked with implementing these restrictions are also just kind of like, you know, (laughs) enough. So you have an angry population, or at least some portion of the population's angry. You, You have a lot of dissatisfaction with zero COVID and you have the government that is committed to zero COVID and willing to use a lot of repression and doesn't want to lose face. Why should I not assume that this is going to end very badly for for the protesters? Yeah, uh, you know, the way that China has dealt with this before is always to crack down even more, you know, not to let any bit of air escape. Maybe they'll change a little bit, relax on the surface some of the COVID controls. But for now, I don't think anyone would say that they could see a total relaxation of zero COVID, of learning to live with the virus, of dropping mask mandates and things like that. Uh, It's not going to happen. I mean, just on that public health element alone, the government can't really risk that, especially with the way the virus is so contagious these days. Their, uh, Their MO has always been to tighten further. But again, if you look at the case of Hong Kong, which is it's not an apples to apples comparison by any means, but it's one one area past precedent that we could look at. Every time the government has cracked down more, people have actually gotten more angry. And seeing people out in the streets have galvanized more people to come out. Police brutality in Hong Kong also got more people out in the streets, people who were just sort of bystanders and observers and curious but not curious enough to risk their own well-being and political capital. So we'll see what happens. Though. Some of this has to do with how much information people get of what's happened to protesters who were already involved. Uh, the government can obviously control what's online and what people know about that pretty easily. But we'll see. They've let a few things out for broadcast in China the last few weeks, which seem to have spurred the anger too. Xi Jinping and his wife, Peng Liyuan, showed up at the G20 in Bali without face masks. And then the World Cup is on TV, stadiums full of fans without face masks, having a grand old time. I mean, that really, 
upset people. And then after the government caught wind of that, after the state broadcaster caught wind of that, they started showing no more close-ups of people in the stadium, just these wide shots. So you can't really see that they're wearing face masks. So as the world moves on, there's only so much that China can keep blocked from their own citizens, right, of what they know, what's happening. I mean, people are traveling a bit, you know, in my interactions with people in China, everyone's like, oh, what's it like now outside? (laughs) You know, do you have to wear a mask? Do you have to do a test to arrive when you get there? And I'm like, nope, 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 nope. (laughs) They're like, well, then why is China still like this? And I'm like, well, (laughs) so you can tell from the way that they're engaging and asking you know, what they're asking about, that people are really pretty curious about what the rest of the world is like and wondering why they're still dealing with this kind of lockdown uncertainty. So I want to ask you before we close about Xi Jinping. So, you know, he just had this big party Congress, crowning achievement, third term, precedent-breaking, he's got everybody under control, he humiliated Hu Jintao, and then the protests start. And, uh, you know, you you have always emphasized that he is a black box and you can't really, there's so much we don't know about him, but I'm. this has got to be pretty humiliating for him, and I'm curious uh, for your sense of what he is likely to think of this and and how he personally is likely to react. It's definitely embarrassing for these protests to go on for long. Just the fact that they happened is completely, I mean, this is, we're really definitely crossing into, crossing red lines. There have been protests before against Xi Jinping. All those people, these were usually lone woman, lone man kind of protests. And these people have suffered significantly. A lot of them vanish, disappear completely. Their family members get detained, show up later in body bags. You know, they get released from prison only when they're dead. The stories are really awful. So using that to guide what could happen next, all of these people are probably going to be looking at a pretty rough time going forward. It's really brave and really bold for them to have exercised their freedom of speech to come out and voice what they really think and what they feel. But Xi Jinping, from what we know about him, has himself zero tolerance for this kind of behavior. He really believes in the Communist Party, what it stands for. He really thinks that this is the system for the way forward for the Chinese people, for his nation, for the great rejuvenation of China, as he always talks about. And so from that perspective, a small fraction of the population suffering, being locked up possibly for the greater whole, the greater good, that's pain he's willing to take. That's something he's willing to do. And to him, it, I'm not sure that he would even consider it pain, so to speak. I think he would just see that as a necessary move. So that's my best take on how I think he might be thinking about this, if he even knows. Again, I can't imagine he doesn't know, but there is always a question. How much does he actually know of what's going on in his own country, right? He's got now an even tighter group of loyalists around him at the top, and they for sure, will not ever want to fall to his bad side because that means they get purged, they get in trouble themselves, their families too. So who wants to be the bearer of bad news to a dictator who is so powerful, right? Who wants to be that person? So yeah, all, all big question marks. But it's, it's impossible, though, to imagine that he's unaware of the situation at all, right? Yeah, I would venture to say that it's impossible 
but to what extent that it's impossible that he doesn't know anything of what's happening, but to what extent, like, does he know that there are people calling for him to resign, to step down? You know, he might have some sense that people are upset with zero COVID, but kind of who isn't right. I'm sure, you know, his, his, uh, his trusted lieutenants by him are also a bit upset. I mean, a lot of those guys, especially his, his foreign minister, who's done the most traveling, I guess, out of anyone in government during this, pandemic period i mean he's had to i'm sure undergo quite a lot of quarantine because of his travel so you know how much of what is happening does he really know about and how are people explaining it to him finally i'm interested in the blank pieces of paper i can read them several ways either they mean you know what i'm saying i don't have to write it down or I could see it being a kind of ironic reader response gesture, right? You decide, I'm just protesting, you decide what I'm saying. It seems to me very culturally uh, specific, and I haven't been on the ground there ever. So you have recently, for a protracted period of time, what does it mean to you when somebody holds up a blank piece of paper in China? The blank paper is a great example of how people get very creative to circumvent censorship in China. So online, obviously, uh, for some time, mentions of the protest, even starting from Beijing or Shanghai, would mean you couldn't find anything. So the idea was to snuff out any mention. And then people started to move to different ways of referencing the protests, but those also have been censored. Offline, people holding these blank sheets of paper... I guess also online they're posting pictures themselves doing that, but offline doing this is really interesting. To me, it symbolizes this idea of censorship, that they can't fully and freely express what they're, what they're feeling. And that's what that blank sheet of paper is, an attempt to try to express something that they can't always do to the extent that they would like to. White is also a color that's linked to mourning, to funerals in China. So it's also a way to have a nod, to nod toward those who've died more recently in the fires, those who've suffered because of the COVID restrictions. Everybody's got a story about this kind of thing. You know, people who've miscarried, people who had a stroke, told their neighbors, and then got detained by the police for doing so, for spreading rumors online. I mean, these are stories that I know personally from people in my orbit. You know, everybody's got a story like this about how COVID restrictions have meant some form of calamity. It's a multi-pronged, the meaning. And at the end of the day, if people are getting arrested for holding a blank sheet of paper, that itself is a really powerful message to the world about what the Chinese state is all about, right? This is really interesting. And it's so powerful, even though it's such a simple conventional item, right? It's just a piece of paper. And the Chinese government, arguably one of the most powerful governments in the world, is afraid of a piece of paper. I mean, this is just fascinating. So it's pretty smart. They're pretty creative uh, protesters to be using this as a way to show what they feel and what they want. You know, And it's also, a, in a way, an act of defiance. Like, okay, fine, you won't let me say what I want to say. Well, here you go. You know, it's In a way, it's like its own version of the middle finger. <laughs> yeah, they've gotten really creative. On uh, One last example I'll give... On Chinese social media, on the account for, on the Weibo account for this one guy who's uh, at the foreign ministry, Zhao Lijian, he's one of the most vocal wolf warrior types, wolf warrior diplomats that, that we've got in the world right now. <laughs> A lot of people have been 
basically bombing his comment section. They're writing like, good, 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 good. Okay, 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 okay. You know, they're like just kind of sending these comments out there being like, okay, fine, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. They're like sort of mocking him, right? I mean, it's really smart. I mean, how can you get in trouble for agreeing, so to speak? You know, it's this layer of sarcasm that is very interesting, kind of tongue-in-cheek and gets the point across without... And, and leaves you with some sort of defense if you are accused of wrongdoing later. So all very creative. Well, I'm sure we'll see many other creative forms of expression in the days to come. We are going to leave it there. Sophia Yan, thanks so much for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was me. I recorded it myself. That said... I have an assignment for you. You need to become a material supporter of Lawfare. So go to patreon.com. It's not Giving Tuesday anymore, but it's the spirit of Giving Tuesday. Go to patreon.com slash lawfare and sign up to become a material supporter. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is even today performed by Sophia Yan, our guest, and as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.